Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so we pray now that you would shine your light by your Holy Spirit, through your word, into our lives, so we can see what these things mean for us and how they help us to follow Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. How do we know what God's attitude to us is? What are the signs? For many people, the signs are in our circumstances. When things go well, we thank God for his blessings, maybe for a new job or a clean bill of health or the kids have done well or prayers are answered in some way. We say, thank you, God, for your goodness and kindness. God is good, we say. But when things don't go so well, and we're struggling in some way, or our prayers seem to go unanswered, we may find it harder to know what to say or to pray. What is God's attitude to me? Well, yesterday I thought he loved me, but today I'm not so sure. And of course, some people will go further than all that. Well, how can you believe in a God who seems to treat people differently for no obvious reason? who answers her prayer for a new job, but not his prayer for a baby. Surely that points to the fact that your God is nothing but a cosmic Father Christmas in the sky, handing out gifts to the good and withholding them from the naughty, except how dare he say that, you know, she's good and he's bad. This God you believe in is not only inconsistent, he's not even good, he's bad. And I can't believe in a God like that and I don't understand why you waste all your time and energy and money on believing in him and all the implications of that. That's what some might say. Some might come at this question from a completely different angle again. In the light of our sin, in the light of our weakness, in the light of our lack for God and for those around us, in the light of our rebellion against the God who made us, in the light of all those things, how could he possibly love me? Why should God's attitude towards us be anything other than disappointment, frustration, grief, wrath even? Well, we're looking over the next three weeks at three prophecies of the Messiah, of Jesus, in the book of Isaiah that was written 800 years before Jesus came. But even with such a big time gap, it points clearly to him and it testifies to him in wonderfully clear ways. Now, we often read these chapters in Advent and at Christmas, but this gives us an opportunity just to dig into them a little and see how it is that they do actually point to Jesus. And as we look at Isaiah chapter 7 this morning in this first prophecy, we're going to see that it speaks into those questions that we've just been thinking about. The clearest sign of God's attitude to us is located not in our everyday circumstances, our ups and downs, not in our behaviour, in our own ability to measure up, but somewhere rather different. And the reading that we heard combines for, for many of us the familiar with the unfamiliar. I don't know if you felt that. There's lots of details about this king, Ahaz. Who's he again, we might be thinking. Uh, various colourful images about 
forests shaken by the wind, smouldering stubs of firewood, the Lord whistling for flies and bees, and using a razor to shave off hair from heads and legs and beards. In the midst of all that, perhaps a bit more unfamiliar to many of us, we have verse 14, sticking out like a friendly face at a Christmas party full of strangers. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And many of us will know that, of course, because of the second reading that we heard from Matthew's Gospel, which we hear regularly at Christmas, at carol services and so on. Matthew says, in effect, you know that verse in the middle of Isaiah chapter 7? It was pointing to Jesus. And now that Jesus has come, born of a virgin, he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. But what is this promise? What is this sign in Isaiah chapter 7, 14? What is it doing here? What does it mean? We're going to look and see how it fits into the whole chapter and the wider Bible story. And that's going to help us with that bigger question about how God what God's attitude to us is today. So this chapter is about signs. Signs, first of all, of human faithlessness. Human faithlessness. So let's see that. Where where are we in the Bible timeline when this is happening? Well, Isaiah is a prophet speaking God's word to the southern kingdom of Judah. This is after King David and King Solomon, after civil war has broken Israel into two kingdoms, Judah in the south and also slightly confusingly Israel in the north, also sometimes known as Ephraim as we'll see, and Israel by which that means just the ten northern tribes and Judah, the southern two tribes, they are fighting. Verse 1, can you see that? Pekah, king of Israel, has allied himself with Rezin, king of Aram, and Aram is basically a region of modern Syria, and their combined forces are fighting against Ahaz, king of Judah. Okay, with me so far? So Ahaz, king of Judah, is holding out, but he's clearly up against it. And particularly verse 2, he feels that when the news of Israel's alliance with Aram arrives and their hearts are shaken like the trees of a forest in a wind. He's not happy about his circumstances. So God says to Isaiah, go and meet Ahaz. He's checking out the security on Jerusalem's water supply. He's preparing for a siege. Now don't miss who goes with Isaiah. Uh, can you see that? Verse 3, he takes his son, Shear Jashub. Now, Shear Jashub is a bit of a designer name. You know David Beckham with his children, Brooklyn and Romeo and Cruz and Harper Seven. We're waiting to see if number five might be called quarter to eight. But I don't know. But those unusual trend-setting names all have meanings that the Beckhams have explained in various interviews. And Shear Jashub has a meaning. It means, a remnant shall return. It's quite a name to carry with you into the school playground, isn't it? Though spare a thought for Isaiah's son, Mahashalal Hashbaz, an even bigger mouthful who's mentioned in chapter 8, verse 1. But this name, Shear Jashub, is significant because it reminds us 
as Ahaz faces his worst fears, that behind all this stands a God who has made some huge promises about Judah. Sheer Jashub, a remnant shall return. And we'll see more about that in a moment. But God is not at the forefront of Ahaz's mind as he faces the imminent threat of destruction. Do you know how he feels? You know, come on, praying is all very well, but we need to actually do something here. Or or we face the real threat of being wiped out. Now, for us, it's probably not the fear of being wiped out by a political enemy that makes us switch into activist mode, but we probably know that feeling of panic about different things. The world is caving in. It might just be my own personal world that is caving in in some way, but we think, I've just got to do something. I've got to sort this. Fear has gripped Ahaz, do you see? And Isaiah is to say to him, verse 4, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart. Literally, those words say, be careful to do nothing. Be careful to do nothing. And that is more than just standing still. There is is a passage in 2 Kings chapter 16 which fills in some of the details on what is happening here. And it tells us that at this point, Ahaz ended up sending messengers to the king of Assyria to ask for help. So when Isaiah is telling him to do nothing, he means, whatever you do, don't call on the king of Assyria for help. Do nothing. Because Assyria were the massive superpower of the day. So Ahaz is thinking, they'll help us. They'll they'll get us out of the fix. But it's rather like a mouse under threat from another mouse and going to ask a cat for help. It's a very risky, potentially self-destructive strategy. So look how Isaiah continues. Yes, you know, you face a massive threat from Aram and Ephraim or or Israel, but but look at verse 7. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. It will not happen. Who are Aram and Ephraim? Well, you know, he says, the head or capital of Aram is Damascus. And the bloke in charge of Damascus is only resin, says God. What about Ephraim? Well, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Romalia's son. I'm not even going to name him. He's so insignificant. And there's a further implication here. What's the head of Judah? Well, that that would be Jerusalem. And and who's the head of Jerusalem? Remind us. Well, that would be the son of David, The inheritor of all God's huge promises. So, Ahaz, how about it? Who are you going to trust? On the one hand, he could choose the visible, tangible security of going to Assyria for help. That's the option that will give him short-term control of the situation. The other option is to go with the invisible, intangible, the option that is foolishness in the eyes of the world, the option of simply trusting God who promises it will not happen. Are you going to stand firm in your faith, Ahaz, or are you going to go with the cat? That's the dilemma. Do you see? And again, do you know that dilemma? I know I do. The temptation to seize a crisis in your own hands of saying, I just need to sort this out. It doesn't matter how. 
I'll do anything. Forget God, forget the long-term consequences. This is too much to cope with. We do it because we're afraid. Afraid of loneliness, perhaps. So we pursue an unwise relationship that Scripture makes clear is not something we should be doing. We're afraid of, of not having enough to live on. Or perhaps just not having as much as those around us. So we'll work way too many hours, or we'll even fiddle the books, or we'll tell half-truths to get the job done. Where we are afraid of what people think of us. Afraid of being the one that people pity. So we'll do whatever it takes. If you will not stand firm in your faith, says God, you will not stand at all. And what he means, of course, is that it's not just wrong to take the easy way out. When the mouse goes to the cat for help, it's utterly foolish. The king of Assyria will come. So we see that later towards the end of the reading, verse 17. The king of Assyria will come, but he will come as God's instrument of judgment on faithlessness. And the final verses of the reading then describe in detail the consequences of not trusting God. And for us, how often do those short-term godless solutions let us down and destroy us? When we look to human love to save us from loneliness, every time someone lets us down, we are cut to the heart. When we look to approval to save us from our fear of insignificance, every time someone criticises us or disagrees with us, we feel worthless. When we look to control to save us from our fear of insecurity, every time things don't go our way, we are eaten up by anger. Daily we face a choice like Ahaz did. Do we trust God or do we trust ourselves? If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And the Bible warns us, in the end, if we persist in that attitude of faithlessness, of not trusting God, of rejecting him, God's attitude towards us is only righteous, holy wrath. But God doesn't give up easily. And so, verse 10, God speaks to Ahaz directly. I know it's hard to have faith in in the face of such a huge threat, so ask me for a sign to boost your faith, to give you confidence. And Ahaz says, no, I will not put the Lord to the test. And we hear that, and if we know our Bibles a little, we might think, well, hang on a minute, that sounds like quite a good thing to say, doesn't it? Isn't it wrong to put God to the test? Isn't that what Israel did in the desert with Moses? Isn't that what Jesus refused to do when the devil tempted him? Think about a child on Christmas morning opening all their presents. They're doing all the unwrapping one by one and then they get to the end and they say, can I have my present now? That's where Israel went wrong in the desert. God had given them plenty of evidence that they could trust him by feeding them miraculously. But they still want more. They want more proof. They've been given plenty of proof, but they want more. That is putting God to the test. This here with Ahaz is different Okay, this is like a child being given a present and then refusing to open it. Do you see? Trust me, ask for a sign, says God. No, I don't want to do that, says Ahaz. 
maybe a little bit like someone refusing to investigate the evidence for whether Christianity might be true, just in case it might be. We see here then the signs of human faithlessness. And as we thought at the beginning, there is enough here to make us think, will God bother with his people anymore if this is how they treat him? So we come then to, a, to another sign, the sign of God's faithfulness. The sign of God's faithfulness. In the midst then of, of, of human unfaithfulness comes this glimpse of God keeping his promises. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now we think, as soon as we hear that, if we've been around church for any period of time, we immediately think of Jesus, Matthew chapter 1, But very often with Old Testament prophecy, there's an immediate meaning for God's people then and a final fulfilment in Jesus. And that's what's going on here. Now, you may be aware people sometimes kick up a fuss about this word that is translated virgin in verse 14. They say, oh, well, you know, in the original language, it just means young woman. So, ah, you see, Isaiah never prophesied the virgin birth of Jesus. Matthew kind of made that up or he mistranslated it. But actually it's worth realising that while the word concern can be translated as young unmarried woman, in that culture it would be assumed that a young unmarried woman was a virgin. And more than that, actually it clearly carries that sense of virgin at various points in the rest of the Old Testament when that word is used. And way before Jesus came, Jewish translators of the Bible, when they translated it into Greek, into a, a version that's called the Septuagint, they appeared to understand it that way. Because when they translated the Hebrew word at that point, they used a Greek word for virgin. Thought that that's what this is talking about. And that's what their Matthew quotes in chapter 1. So it's not unreasonable at all to translate this as virgin. Chapter chapter 7, verse 14. But there is more to it than that, because again, what would someone reading this 800 years before Jesus have understood by it? Well, in the rest of Isaiah, the image of a woman keeps coming up in different places, and it's a metaphor, a picture of Zion, of Jerusalem. Right at the end of the book, in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7, Isaiah sees again a vision of a woman giving birth to a son, and he links that explicitly to Zion bringing forth children. A remnant, remember the remnant? A remnant of the people of God who trust in him and don't go after idols. So Shir Jashub, a remnant shall return. As unfaithful Ahaz wavers, he's going to be given a sign which involves... God raising up a faithful remnant despite the sin of his people. Do you notice in verse 11, Isaiah says to Ahaz, ask your God for a sign. But then by verse 13, it's my God as Isaiah speaks to him. So Isaiah says to him, this descendant from virgin Israel will be God with us, right? God with us. In other words, not with you, unfaithful Ahaz, unless you turn, unless you come back. He will be with us. He will be with Isaiah. He will be with the faithful remnant who are trusting in God and not trusting idols. So Ahaz has a decision to make. Which way is he going to turn? 
Is he going to join the remnant, the ones who have God with us, by trusting wholeheartedly in God, or is he going to continue to hedge his bets with the king of Assyria? Those who turn back to God are the people who will be able to say, Emmanuel, God is with us. He's not with Ahaz. He's not with the big, impressive kings and princes. He's not with the people who appear to have everything sorted in this world and have all the power and all the authority. No, he is with those who return to God and trust in him. And we may have nothing to show in the eyes of the world. We may look totally weak, but in the face of fear, we can say, Emmanuel, God is with us. That's what an original reader would first have been looking for as they read this, this expectation of a faithful remnant within the people of Israel who are the sign that God is with us. But the thing is, the history of Israel continued to prove that in fact no human being was able to trust in God wholeheartedly and live for him in complete obedience. There were one or two glimmers of hope in the you know, kings like Hezekiah and Josiah and, and others, but they still turned out to be sinners who could not solve the problem of sin in themselves and certainly not in the rest of God's people. And so there's still this, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting for this sign, for this remnant, for the faithfulness, for the faithful remnant to come. And we wait and we wait and we wait until we read about the birth of this Israelite in Matthew chapter 1. In the end, the only way that Isaiah chapter 7, 14 could be fulfilled by an Israelite was through a son being born to a virgin. Because his virgin birth is itself a sign that he is no ordinary man. No sinner like the rest of the human race, like all those who'd come before, even the ones who looked like they were going to be the faithful remnant, the ones that God is with, they still sin. They, they, the, the one who's going to come has got to be different. And his virgin birth, born of a woman, he's fully human, but conceived by the Holy Spirit, he is sinless. He is unique. He is God on earth as man. And so he grew up experiencing our suffering and our weakness and our pain and fears as a human being, fully human, and yet then as the sinless one, he is able to die to end sin and suffering once and for all. That is why he's called God with us. That is why Matthew points to him as the ultimate fulfilment of Isaiah chapter 7, 14. Here is the sign once and for all in the face of all our faithlessness and sin and rebellion against God. Here is the sign that God is with us. And so the angel says again, call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Their sins, our sins of faithlessness like Ahaz. Do you see? Our sins of not trusting God in the face of crises. Our sins of making poor decisions that lead to chaos and pain and regret. Our sins of seeking to grasp control for ourselves. Our sins that incur the wrath of a holy God. For all these and more... Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, he died. And so in the face of fears about loneliness, about health, about our children and our loved ones, in the face of our deepest fears, 
We may have nothing that we can hold on to, humanly speaking. But we can say, God is with us. And that changes everything. And as we saw in the opening verses, the Apostle Paul puts it, if God is for us, who then can be against us? So what is God's attitude to us today? Well, what we deserve is not life and rescue. We deserve the king of Assyria. We deserve his wrath. And yet he's given us this sign that despite our faithlessness and our rebellion, he is with us. And so if we have Jesus, we have everything we need. And the flip side of that is if we don't have Jesus, we have absolutely nothing. Do you realise that? If you've not yet trusted in this sign that God has given us, in this baby who is God with us, who grew up to die for his people who rebelled against him, he can be yours too if you simply trust in him. God has given us the sign. He's with us. Now receive what he's offered you in Christ. Because when we do that, we can know God is with us. Let me pray. Father, we know our hearts are just like the heart of King Ahaz. We flee so easily to human solutions to our problems that make things worse, not better. And we will also naturally look to human solutions to the deepest problem of our sin and the judgment we deserve. But thank you for this sign that we don't deserve, but you give us out of your grace and love. Thank you for Jesus, who is God with us, Emmanuel, born of a virgin. Thank you that he, unlike us, did not sin. Thank you that he trusted you in all the circumstances where we fail and mess up. Thank you then that he died for us. And took the judgment we deserve on his shoulders on the cross. Thank you that he rose. That he reigns today. That we can be confident Therefore, that you are with us. And may our trust be therefore only in you and nowhere else. Amen.